0: Chapter Two of Principles of Economics, Book Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Sherris. Principles of Economics, Book Five by Alfred Marshall. Chapter Two Temporary Equilibrium of Demand and Supply. The simplest case of balance or equilibrium between desire and effort is found when a person satisfies one of his wants by his own direct work. When a boy picks blackberries for his own eating, the action of picking is probably itself pleasurable for a while, and for some time longer the pleasure of eating is more than enough to repay the trouble of picking. But after he has eaten a good deal, the desire for more diminishes, while the task of picking begins to cause weariness, which may indeed be a feeling of monotony, rather than of fatigue. Equilibrium is reached when at last his eagerness to play and his disinclination for the work of picking counterbalance the desire for eating. The satisfaction which he can get from picking fruit has arrived at its maximum, for up to that time every fresh picking has added more to his pleasure than it has taken away, and after that time any further picking would take away from his pleasure more than it would add in a casual bargain that one person makes with another as for instance when two backwoodsmen barter a rifle for a canoe there is seldom anything that can properly be called an equilibrium of supply and demand there is probably a margin of satisfaction on either side for probably the one would be willing to give something besides the rifle for the canoe if he could not get the canoe otherwise while the other would in case of necessity give something besides the canoe for the rifle It is indeed possible that a true equilibrium may be arrived at under a system of barter, but barter, though earlier in history than buying and selling, is in some ways more intricate, and the simplest cases of a true equilibrium value are found in the markets of a more advanced state of civilization. We may put aside as of little practical importance a class of dealings which has been much discussed. They relate to pictures by old masters, rare coins and other things which cannot be graded at all the price at which each is sold will depend much on whether any rich persons with a fancy for it happen to be present at its sale if not it will probably be bought by dealers who reckon on being able to sell it at a profit and the variations in the price for which the same picture sells at successive auctions great as they are would be greater still if it were not for the steadying influence of professional purchasers let us then turn to the ordinary dealings of modern life and take an illustration from a corn market in a country town And let us assume, for the sake of simplicity, that all the corn in the market is of the same quality. The amount which each farmer or other seller offers for sale at any price is governed by his own need for money in hand, and by his calculation of the present and future conditions of the market with which he is connected. There are some prices which no seller would accept, some which no one would refuse. There are other intermediate prices which would be accepted for larger or smaller amounts by many or all of the sellers everyone will try to guess the state of the market and to govern his actions accordingly. Let us suppose that in fact there are not more than six hundred quarters, the holders of which are willing to accept as low a price as thirty-five shillings, but that holders of another hundred would be tempted by thirty-six shillings, and holders of yet another three hundred by thirty-seven shillings. Let us suppose also that a price of thirty-seven shillings would tempt buyers for only six hundred quarters, while another hundred could be sold at thirty-six shillings, And yet another two hundred at thirty five shillings. These facts may be put out in a table thus: At the price thirty seven shillings, holders will be willing to sell a thousand quarters, buyers will be willing to buy six hundred quarters. At the price thirty six shillings, holders will be willing to sell seven hundred quarters, buyers will be willing to buy seven hundred quarters. At the price thirty five shillings, holders will be willing to sell six hundred quarters, and buyers will be willing to buy nine hundred quarters. Of course, some of those who are really willing to take 36 shillings, rather than leave the market without selling, will not show at once that they are ready to accept that price, and in like manner buyers will fence and pretend to be less eager than they really are. So the price may be tossed hither and thither like a shuttlecock, as one side or the other gets the better in the higgling and bargaining of the market. But unless they are unequally matched, unless, for instance, one side is very simple or unfortunate in failing to gauge the strength of the other side, the price is likely to be never very far from thirty six shillings, and it is nearly sure to be pretty close to thirty six shillings at the end of the market; for if a holder thinks that the buyers will really be able to get at thirty six shillings all that they care to take at that price, he will be unwilling to let slip past him any offer that is well above that price. Buyers on their part will make similar calculations, and if at any time the price should rise considerably above thirty six shillings, they will argue that the supply would be much greater than the demand at that price, therefore even those of them who would rather pay that price than go unserved wait and by waiting they help to bring the price down on the other hand when the price is much below thirty six shillings even those sellers who would rather take the price than leave the market with their corn unsold will argue that at that price the demand will be in excess of the supply so they will wait and by waiting help to bring the price up the price of thirty six shillings has thus some claim to be called the true equilibrium price because if it were fixed on at the beginning and adhered to throughout, it would exactly equate demand and supply, that is, the amount which buyers were willing to purchase at that price would be just equal to that for which sellers were willing to take that price, and because every dealer who has a perfect knowledge of the circumstances of the market expects that price to be established. If he sees the price differing much from 36 shillings, he expects that a change will come before long, and by anticipating it, he helps to come quickly it is not indeed necessary for our argument that any dealer should have a thorough knowledge of the circumstances of the market many of the buyers may perhaps underrate the willingness of the sellers to sell with the effect that for some time the price rules at the highest level at which any buyers can be found and thus five hundred quarters may be sold before the price sinks below thirty seven shillings but afterwards the price must begin to fall and the result will still probably be that two hundred more quarters will be sold and the market will close on a price of about thirty-six shillings. For when seven hundred quarters have been sold, no seller will be anxious to dispose of any more except at a higher price than thirty-six shillings, and no buyer will be anxious to purchase any more except at a lower price than thirty-six shillings. In the same way, if the sellers had underrated the willingness of the buyers to pay a high price, some of them might begin to sell at the lowest price they would take, rather than have their corn left on their hands and in this case much corn might be sold at a price of 35 shillings, but the market would probably close on a price of 36 shillings, and a total sale of 700 quarters. In this illustration there is a latent assumption which is in accordance with the actual conditions of most markets, but which ought to be distinctly recognized in order to prevent its creeping into those cases in which it is not justifiable. We tacitly assume that the sum which purchasers were willing to pay, and which sellers were willing to take, the seven-hundredth quarter would not be affected by the question whether the earlier bargains had been made at a higher or low price. We allowed for the diminution of the buyer's need of corn, its marginal utility to them, as the amount bought increased, but we did not allow for any appreciable change in their unwillingness to part with money, its marginal utility. We assumed that that would be practically the same whether the early payments had been at a higher or low rate, This assumption is justifiable with regard to most of the market dealings with which we are practically concerned. When a person buys anything for his own consumption, he generally spends on it a small part of his total resources, while when he buys it for the purposes of trade, he looks to reselling it, and therefore his potential resources are not diminished. In either case, there is no appreciable change in his willingness to part with money. There may indeed be individuals of whom this is not true, but there are sure to be present some dealers with large stocks of money at their command and their influence studies the market. The exceptions are rare and unimportant in markets for commodities, but in markets for labor they are frequent and important. When a workman is in fear of hunger, his need of money, its marginal utility to him, is very great, and, if at starting he gets the worst of the bargaining and is employed at low wages, it remains great, and he may go on selling his labor at a low rate. That is all the more probable, because, while the advantage in bargaining is likely to be pretty well distributed between the two sides of a market for commodities, it is more often on the side of the buyers than on the side of the sellers in a market for labor. Another difference between a labor market and a market for commodities arises from the fact that each seller of labor has only one unit of labor to dispose of. There are two among many facts, in which we shall find, as we go on, The explanation of much of that instinctive objection which the working classes have felt to the habit of some economists, particularly those of the employer class, of treating labor simply as a commodity and regarding the labor market as like every other market, whereas in fact the differences between the two cases, though not fundamental from the point of view of theory, are yet clearly marked and in practice often very important. The theory of buying and selling becomes therefore much more complex when we take account of the dependence of marginal utility on amount in the case of money as well as of the commodity itself. The practical importance of this consideration is not very great, but a contrast is drawn in Appendix F between barter and dealings in which one side of each exchange is in the form of general purchasing power. In barter, a person's stock of either commodity exchange needs to be adjusted closely to his individual wants, if his stock is too large he may have no good use for it if his stock is too small he may have some difficulty in finding any one who can conveniently give him what he wants and is also in need of that particular things of which he himself has a superfluity but any one who has a stock of general purchasing power can obtain anything he wants as soon as he meets with any one who has a superfluity of that thing he needs not to hunt about till he comes across the double coincidence of a person who can spare what he wants and also wants what he can spare consequently everyone and especially a professional dealer can afford to keep command over a large stock of money and can therefore make considerable purchases without depleting his stock of money or greatly altering its marginal value end of chapter 2 recording by scott sherris atlanta georgia usa